Well, Paul was Christianity's most prolific missionary. Throughout the centuries, folks have marveled at his brain, Paul's vast intellect, his heart, his deep passion for people, his shoulders, the responsibility that he carried for the churches, even his back, the beatings he endured for the gospel's sake. But never underestimate Paul's feet. For Paul's feet crisscrossed the Roman Empire four times. In the portion of Acts that covers his travels, 40 different cities get mentioned by name. His three missionary campaigns logged more than 8,100 miles and kept him on the road for more than a decade. Imagine all the stamps in Paul's passport. Oswald Sanders once wrote, Other missionaries have opened continents to the gospel. Paul opened a continent, Paul opened a world to the gospel. And tonight we embark on Paul's first missionary journey, which took him nearly three years to complete. It won't take us near that long to hit the highlights. Acts chapter 13. Now, in the church that was at Antioch, and notice the shift. Until chapter 13, headquarters of the Jesus movement has been Jerusalem. But now its epicenter moves north towards Syria to the church at Antioch. And Paul will now replace Peter in the spotlight. You remember Peter was the apostle to the Jews, but Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And Antioch will be the gateway to the west. It was the hub of the gospel spread among the Gentiles. Well, verse 1, now at Antioch there were certain prophets and teachers. First was Barnabas. His name means son of encouragement. In Acts chapter 11, remember, we learn that Barnabas was an early leader in the Antioch church. Simeon, who was called Niger. The nickname Niger means black. Simeon could have been a black-skinned man from Africa, perhaps from present-day Nigeria. Lucius of Cyrene, was another one meeting there. You remember Simon of Cyrene? Simon was the man who carried the cross for Jesus. He was from Cyrene, which was in North Africa. Did Simon go home and witness to this Lucius? Perhaps he did. I think it's important to note, before we go further, The role played by dark-skinned people in the early church. You remember the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. He was from Ethiopia. He was no doubt a black man. Here two black men lay hands on Paul and launch his ministry, Lucius and Simeon. It's interesting that many of the most famous early church fathers were of African descent. Augustine was black. His mother, Monica, was a Berber. She had dark skin. Athanasius, who helped defeat the Arian heresy, was known as the black dwarf because of his dark skin and his small stature. Even the early apologist Tertullian was from North Africa and probably a dark-skinned man. Often people are taught that Africans were first exposed to Christianity on the slave plantations in America. Not so. Blacks were among the apostles and prophets that laid the foundation of the early church. In fact, it is a fact that the gospel came to black Africa years before it arrived in white Europe. Well, there were two other leaders in Antioch. Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. This is an interesting kid to play with when you're young. This was Herod Antipas. He was the man who beheaded John the Baptist. You remember he had married his brother's wife, Herodias, and had lived in open, defiant immorality. Jesus called Herod the Tetrarch a fox. Well, apparently Herod and Menaean had started out either close pals or perhaps relatives. But somewhere along the line, their paths split. Menaean's conscience was saved by the blood of Jesus, Antipas's conscience became seared, and he eventually, of course, uh, followed a dreadful demise. And then last on the list is Saul. Soon his name will be changed 
to Paul. Now verse 2. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And the rest of Acts will track Paul's exploits all the way to Rome. He'll shake the world for Jesus. But I want you to note it all started at a prayer meeting in Antioch. And notice why the church had gathered. They ministered to the Lord. You know, we think of Paul ministering for the Lord. We talk about ministering for the Lord. But did you know you can minister to the Lord? In fact, before you ever minister for him, you need to minister to him. This is our first calling. What a joy it is to know that I, a finite human being, can minister to the infinite God. That I can make him happy. That I can bring him joy. When I pour out my love to him, when I sing his praise, I can minister to God. Isn't that an amazing thought? Well, you can too. God saves us not just to serve him, but to spend time with him. And here the church gathers not just to seek from God, but to give God their devotion. And yet it was on such an occasion that the Holy Spirit spoke to the church. Separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. And of course the question arises, how did the Holy Spirit speak? Was it an audible voice? Was it handwriting on the wall? Was it maybe an inner witness? Well, the answer is we don't know. But there is a clue. Notice verse 1 tells us that some of the men who were there and praying were prophets. Perhaps the Holy Spirit spoke through an extemporaneous message through the voice of one of these prophets. Perhaps he gave a message saying, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas. Well then, having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and then sent them away. It's amazing to me, since his conversion, which has been many years before, Saul had known that he would minister to the Gentiles. But he had waited to go to the Gentiles until he was sent by a church. And that is so important. You know, too many ministries, Christian ministries, launch out on their own without the confirmation and the support and the prayers of their local church. Paul didn't just went, he was sent. Too many people I know, they just went. They were never sent. Paul, he was sponsored, he was commissioned, he was called by a church, and therefore, behind all his efforts, was a praying church. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, which was the port nearest to Antioch, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And of course, Cyprus is an island in the Mediterranean Sea that sits just south of Turkey. And when they arrived in Salamis, which was the port on the east end of Cyprus, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And this will be the pattern that Paul follows. Remember, this is what he modeled from Jesus. For in all the cities that Jesus went, he preached first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Saul, too, will follow that pattern. He preaches the gospel to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. They also had John as their assistant. This man is also called Mark in Acts chapter 12, verse 25. Colossians 4.10 tells us that John Mark was Barnabas' nephew. Tradition says that he was also the author of the gospel of Mark. Well, verse 6. Now, when they had gone through the island to Paphos, Paphos was the capital city of Cyprus. It was at the west end of the island, across about 90 miles opposite Salamis, which was on the eastern end of the island. And so Paul and his pals, they preached their way across the width of Cyprus. And at Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, which is translated son of Jesus. Remember, Jesus wasn't yet a name given to Christians. In the first century, it was still a popular Hebrew name. Well, this Bar-Jesus was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, 
an intelligent man. And, of course, my question is, if he was so intelligent, why in the, what in the world was he doing buddying up to a false prophet and to a sorcerer? This Sergius Paulus was the proconsul, a Roman authority on the island. But he was, but he was bright enough to call for Barnabas and Paul to hear the word of God. And it always shows your smarts whenever you seek to hear the word of God. But Elemas, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Elemas is Arabic, an Arabic word for sorcerer. And apparently this was another name for this Bar-Jesus, the spiritual advisor for this Sergius Paulus. And of course, the idea of a political figure consulting with a psychic is nothing new. This is what Joan Quigley was to Nancy Reagan and what Gene Houston was to Hillary Clinton. While they were in the White House, both first ladies consulted regularly with soothsayers and sorcerers. It's sad when politicians turn to demonic influences rather than to God for wisdom. Well, here, this Bar-Jesus, he knows if his client hears the true word of God, he'll be out of a job. Real Christianity and the occult can never coexist. And so, he opposes Saul. Verse 9. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, for the first time, by the way, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? Paul doesn't pull any punches, does he? He calls it like it is. And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time, and immediately a dark mist fell on him. And he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed. I bet he did. When he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And here's the kind of teaching that really opens your eyes. You recall, this is what it took for Paul to see the truth, was it not? On the road to Damascus, God blinded Saul with a bright light. Now he does the same to a sorcerer. He turns out the physical light so this man can see spiritually. As a side note, it's in verse 9 that Saul's name changes to Paul. Saul meant respected one. Saul was the rabbi. He was the man in demand. He loved the people's respect. Whereas Paul means little. And this name marked a change in his attitude. Saul went from being the haughty man to being a humble man. He went from being the big man on campus to being content to live in the shadow of Jesus. Well, verse 13. Now, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia. They docked on what is today the southern coast of Turkey. And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Now, why did John Mark leave? And the answer is we're not sure. It could have been the fear of persecution. He knew that if they started out with opposition, they were going to encounter opposition everywhere they went. He might have just bailed on account of persecution. It could have been the rigors of travel. Perhaps as a Jew, he had doubts about preaching to the Gentiles. These are all speculation. It's interesting, the early church father, Chrysostom, he had an explanation. He said the lad wanted his mother. And I quote, but a more likely answer may be tied to the phrase, Paul and his party. You see, until now, the two have been referred to as Barnabas and Saul. But over the winter that they spent in Cyprus, apparently Paul had assumed the leadership. It's now Paul and his party. Paul and Barnabas will eventually split company. This may have been the first crack in the breakup. Perhaps Mark saw Paul taking charge and he became jealous for his uncle's sake. If so, it won't be the last time a person's envy gets in the way 
of ministry. But we're told, but when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. There were actually seven Antiochs throughout the ancient world. Paul's group, remember, originated in Antioch of Syria. Now they arrive in Antioch of Galatia or Antioch in Pisidia. Now notice what they've done. They landed in Perga, which was a seaside town. But there's no record of any ministry happening in Perga. Instead, they immediately journey 100 miles and they climb 3,600 feet to the mountain village of Antioch. Why didn't Paul preach in Perga before he made the climb to Antioch? Well, Paul later writes to these same people, the people of Antioch. He sends them a letter, the letter to the Galatians. Antioch was in Galatia. And in Galatians chapter 4, verse 13, it reads, You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. What was it that caused Paul to leave Perga so quickly and go to Antioch to preach? It seems that some physical ailment, some physical infirmity drove Paul out of the tropical, humid climate of Perga, there along the coast, to seek higher ground, the ground of Galatia. At the time, coastal Turkey was known for a deadly strain of malaria. People who contracted it said it was like a red-hot bar thrust right through their forehead. Some early traditions say that Paul's thorn in the flesh that he'll talk about later were actually migraine headaches caused by his malaria. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul notes that their love for him, he says, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. They loved him so much. It's reasonable that Paul suffered some sort of eye disease. Perhaps his condition was tied to the headaches and the malaria, and it was triggered by the hot and humid climate along the Turkish coast. Something caused Paul to head straight to Antioch. Well, he arrived in Antioch, and after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to him, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. This is every pastor's dream for the people to say, Say on, pastor. We'd love for you to preach. It's like saying, Sick him to a bulldog. Say on. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hands, I like that, he said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Do you know anybody who can't talk without using their hands? If you tied their hands behind their back, they'd be speechless. They couldn't say anything. You know, several times in Acts, it says that Paul motioned with his hands before he spoke. Apparently, he was very demonstrative when he talked. He speaks to the Jews in verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they, were, when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. Notice he's giving them a quick overview of Jewish history. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. King Saul was the man who lived for the people's approval. This Saul, the one that's speaking, is the man who lived to please the Lord. And when God had removed King Saul, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Now notice Paul is speaking to Jews. And so he begins with God's dealings in Jewish history. He's going to use a different tact whenever he speaks primarily to Gentiles. 
But here he follows the same outline as Stephen followed when he gave his sermon in the temple. You remember Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. It got him stoned. And I'll bet that Stephen died thinking that his words had fallen on deaf ears. But recall God's promise in Isaiah 55. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Share God's word, friends. It never fails. It always comes home to roost. It's ironic. There must have been one person who heard Stephen, for Saul was in the crowd that day. And although he rejected it at the time, he remembered it later. And here he patterns his sermon in Antioch after the sermon that Stephen spoke in the temple. In Paul's account of history, when he gets to King David, he calls him a man after God's own heart. And then he says in verse 23, from this man's seed. And this was the purpose of the genealogies in the early chapters of Luke and Matthew. Jesus had been a branch on David's family tree. Jewish history had led up to David's seed. God promised a descendant of David that would be an eternal king. The Hebrews called this descendant the Messiah. He would deliver Israel and rule the world. And now Paul points this prophecy to Jesus. He says, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior. And who is it? Jesus, after John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. John the Baptist bowed to none other than Jesus. Both the genealogies and the witness of John pointed to Jesus as the Messiah. And then in verse 26, men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. Notice he's speaking to both Jews and God-fearers. These were men like Cornelius. These were, gen- you remember the Cornelius, the Roman centurion. These were men who had rejected Roman paganism and gravitated to Jewish monotheism and morality. They were Gentiles, but they were God-fearers, and they were seeking the true God. They had mixed in along with the Jews. And to them both, he says, the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, having fulfilled them in condemning him. In other words, the Old Testament predicted the Messiah would be rejected by his own people. Psalm 69 verse 8 is the prophetic cry of the Messiah himself. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. Here Paul says the Jews read sacred scripture every week. Scriptures that prophesied and predicted the coming Messiah and yet they still missed him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Even the crucifixion played out according to God's script, just as God had said in the scriptures. In fact, you can put Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Matthew 27, Put those chapters side by side and every detail from Jesus' bloody back to the spikes in his hands and feet to the soldiers shooting craps for his coat were all foretold by the prophets. It's amazing. Well, Verse 30 records the greatest miracle of all time. But God raised him from the dead. For he was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, 
Today I have begotten you. Jesus was begotten or given life a second time upon his resurrection. Verse 34. And that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. To Jesus, all of the promises made to David would be fulfilled. Realize Jesus wasn't the only person raised from the dead. In the Old Testament, remember, Elisha raised the widow's son. On three occasions, Jesus raised the dead. In Acts 9, remember Peter raised a woman from the dead. But all these folks were raised to die again. All these people died twice. You realize that? Their bodies eventually rotted. Death was delayed, but not defeated. The only body that never deteriorated belonged to Jesus. He never saw corruption. He is alive today, as alive as the day he was born. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, and here he quotes from Psalm 16, verse 10, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Obviously, the promise of Psalm 16 wasn't to David, for his body had already turned to ashes. God's Holy One is Jesus. He alone rose to never die again. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, that is Jesus, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Paul's telling the Jews that observing their own law isn't going to bring salvation. We are justified or we are treated just as if I'd, justified, just as if I'd never sinned by faith in Jesus. And his resurrection's proof. The fact that Jesus overcame the corrupting effects of sin was evidence that he had the authority to forgive the penalty of sin. Thus, salvation is by faith and faith alone in the name of Jesus Christ. Now beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. And Paul quotes Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. The marvel that God worked in Habakkuk's day was to use pagan Gentiles to judge his own people. Now the marvel that he works in Paul's day is he goes a step further and he saves Gentiles from their sins. God works in and among Gentiles as well as Jews. And Paul here warns the Jews, don't harden your heart. Don't miss out on God's miracle. God is changing programs. The requirement is no longer keep the law, but have faith in Jesus. And the offer is not only to Jews, but also to Gentiles. And so when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Now when you read Paul's letter to the Galatians, you learn that these Jews in Antioch failed to continue in God's grace. They embraced Jesus in the beginning, but they thought that to please God, they had to add different elements of their Judaism. They accepted the false notion that Jesus was not enough. They had to add to him circumcision and Sabbath worship and a kosher diet. And a lie festered and grew in the Galatian church. They were selling a mixture of law and grace, faith and works, flesh and spirit. It was a grace plus theology. To be right with God, it takes grace plus fill in the blank with whatever your brand of legalism happens to be. 
And the teachers who promoted this false theology were called Judaizers. In Galatians 5 verse 1, Paul exhorts the Galatians to reject the lies of the Judaizers and to stand firm in the grace of God. He says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Verse 44. On the next day, on the next Sabbath, and again, this is in Antioch of Galatia. Uh, in the near next few months, we're going to study Galatians, and, and this becomes the backdrop of Paul's letter to the Galatians. So on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God, quite a crowd. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming They opposed the things spoke by Paul. Paul was drawing a crowd in contrast to the Jews. The whole city had come out to hear him. And these Jews were jealous of Paul, and so they attacked his message. You know, it's sad that envy can derail a move of God. I like this definition. Envy is the consuming desire to have everybody else as unsuccessful as you are. Apparently, that was the Jews' desire, you know, when it came to attacking Paul. Well, then Paul and Barnabas grew bold, and they said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, that is, the Jews. But since you rejected and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles, for the Lord has commanded us. You didn't get on the bus, now we're moving on. And he quotes Isaiah 49, verse 6. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. The Jews were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, not an obstacle. He says, now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. It hit them. God desires to save all tribes and all people. God's grace is for every race. They rejoiced. And as many had been appointed to eternal life, believed. And here's another way to stress that Gentiles weren't saved by accident. They were saved by God's predetermined will. The Gentiles were also appointed to eternal life. Then verse 49. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. The mob pressured City Hall. The Jews used their political connections to expel Paul and Barnabas from Antioch. God's men split, but God's word spreads. And they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And I love this. They got ran out of town, but it didn't let them, it didn't get them down. I messed that up. They got ran out of town, but it didn't get them down. You you get it. I think that's great. They shook the dust off their feet, and they looked for the wind, the wind of the Holy Spirit. They were filled with joy and filled with the Holy Spirit. They trusted God to keep fresh wind in their sails. The Holy Spirit was faithful to do that. Hey, when you're rejected for Jesus' sake, don't dwell on it. Just shake it off and move on. I'll try this again. You'll never get shook up if you learn to shake off. In the words of Taylor Swift, when haters hate and fakers fake, you've got to shake it off. Shake it off. Shake it off. Chapter 14. Now it happened in Iconium, which was about 90 miles up the road from Antioch. And they went together to the synagogue of the Jews. Remember, that was his practice, go first to the synagogue. And so spoke with a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, they believed. Both Jews and Gentiles were being saved here. This was an unprecedented move of God. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. You know, it's been said, the only thing better than going to heaven is to take somebody with you. But the only thing worse than going to hell 
is taking somebody with you. And here the Jews were doing the latter. They didn't want to share God's favor with the Gentiles. And so they were sabotaging the Gentiles' salvation by stirring up rumors and gossip against Paul. You know, guys, gossip is a serious sin. Especially when it's directed toward God's messengers. Sour a person's attitude toward a pastor or toward a church with baseless accusations and you cripple their ability to deliver God's word. It can cost folks their salvation. We should guard our tongue. Well, he says, therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Notice miracles were occurring in Iconium. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And remember, Jesus said the gospel would have this effect. In Luke chapter 12, verse 51, he said, Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. You know, people are ultimately reconciled in Christ, but initially they might be divided by Christ. You know, you're either in Christ or you're outside of Christ. You're either lost or found. You're either a saint or you're an ain't. One of the two. And here the gospel in Iconium initially caused division among their ranks and among neighbors and among families. It'll do that today. Verse 5, And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they were going to stone Paul and Barnabas. They became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. Paul was booted more times than a football. Here he's kicked out of Iconium. And he moves to Lystra, 18 miles southwest. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting. A cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. It wasn't that he couldn't walk. It was that he had never walked. He had suffered from a birth defect. This man heard Paul speaking, Paul observing him intently, and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. Now, what tipped Paul off to the crippled man's faith? We're not sure. Perhaps Paul had the gift of discernment or the gift of knowledge, whatever it was. When Paul ordered the man to his feet, we're told he leaped and walked. It was a miracle. Verse 11. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Now, when Paul arrived in Antioch in Iconium, he went first to the Jewish synagogue. But there was no synagogue here in Lystra. This town had very few Jews. Unlike the bigger cities, Lystra was a backwoods place. It was kind of a hick town. The citizens of Lystra were uneducated and superstitious. These were simple people, and these were excitable people. They were Gentiles who worshipped the Greek pantheon of gods, and they walked on pins and needles not to offend one. That's behind their motivation here. You see, the Roman poet Ovid told a tale about a couple who lived near Lystra. The Greek gods Zeus and Hermes came to earth disguised as humans. Everywhere they visited, they were shunned until they came to the hut of these peasants who lived near Lystra. This couple showed them great hospitality. Afterwards, the travelers were taken to the, or the the travelers took the couple to the top of a mountain where they saw the whole region wiped out, but the couple's hut was turned into a beautiful temple. The couple became the caretakers of the hut, and when they died, they were turned into two trees 
planted by the entrance of this temple. This was all a legend, part of their mythology. The residents of Lystra were steeped in this kind of thinking, in these stories. And they didn't want to repeat their ancestors' mistakes. Because of the miracle healing, they assumed that once again the gods had come incognito. Since Paul did most of the talking, they figured he was Hermes, the messenger god, and Barnabas was Zeus. And the locals of Lystra wanted, didn't want to make the same mistakes that had been made earlier, and so they wanted to treat these divine visitors with special care. Verse 13. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in the front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard this, They tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. Now remember, with the Jewish crowd, Paul would start with Hebrew history. But now with the Gentiles, he starts with creation. He says, worship the God who made all things. He talks about creation. He talks about nature. That's what these people were familiar with. Now, I believe that this moment in Lystra was the most dangerous moment in Paul's life. Forget the stonings, the beatings, the jailings, the shipwrecks. This was the most precarious situation Paul was ever placed in. When the Pacific explorer James Cook came to the Hawaiian Islands, the natives thought he was their god, Lono. But rather than correcting their assumption, he played along. Captain Cook enjoyed the ruse. For several weeks, he was treated like a god. The natives catered to his every whim. One night, he was about to take advantage of another woman when her husband snuck up and clubbed him over the head. The blow staggered Captain Cook. He started bleeding, and he eventually passed out. The islanders rightly concluded that gods don't bleed. So when Cook woke up, they accused him of deceit and murdered him on the spot. Paul could have pulled a Captain Cook. He could have gone along with the ruse. He could have enjoyed the perks. But he quickly diffused any misconceptions, and he set the record straight. He was just a man. He put his riches on just like they did. They needed to turn from their worthless myths to the living God. I wonder if given the same opportunity, what would we have done? Would we have pulled a James Cook and basked in the limelight reserved only for God? We all can be tempted. This is why our dangerous moments are not our times of hardship. But when folks sing our praises and think of us more highly than they should, those are the most dangerous times for you and me. Remember Paul, he changed his name to Small for a reason. It was a constant reminder that it's all about God, not him. Well, Paul continues with a sermon about the living God. He says, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And again, Paul tailored his sermons to his audience. The Gentiles in Lystra, they knew nothing of Israel history, but they knew nature and they knew the seasons. So he starts where they're at. And with these things, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. Apparently, the crowd was in a frenzy, and they weren't really listening to Paul. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. 
Now here's proof of the frenzied nature of the crowd. Until now, they've been one step away from sacrificing to Paul. But when the Jews who had opposed Paul at Antioch and Iconium catch up and start mingling among them and play on their superstitions, it doesn't take them long to turn from a worship service to a lynching. And this happens more than you think. This is easier than you think. Today's media specializes in shaping public perception regardless of the reality. The media makes its own heroes and its own villains that may or may not be congruent with their character. And this is what happened to Paul. These pagans made him more than he was. The Jews painted him less than he was. Thus he went from hero to bozo in a few minutes. Hey, it was the power of fake news in 48 AD. It was. Paul went from receiving sacrifices to being a sacrifice. Verse 20. However, when the disciples gathered around him, and imagine this scene now. Paul's been stoned. They think he's executed. They think he's dead. Paul's friends gather around him to plan the funeral. They check to see his wallet. They check his wallet to see if he was an organ donor. They, they, they want to get some information, notify the next of kin. They size him up for his new suit. They think he's dead. When all of a sudden, Luke writes, he rose up and went into the city. They thought he was dead. But all of a sudden, this corpse staggers to his feet, balances himself, brushes off the dust and the blood, and says, guys, I've got a sermon that I haven't finished. And he goes back into the city to preach. Talk about a guy with guts. His enemy said, how can you stop a man like this? The answer, you can't. Paul was devoted and he was determined. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. You know, years later, Paul writes to the Corinthians about a special experience he had. In 2 Corinthians 12 verse 4, he says, that he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. In other words, Paul visited heaven. And he saw sights that words failed to express. He, He says that he wasn't even sure if he was in the body or out of the body. Was it a vision or had he died? You know, Jewish literature records four rabbis that got a glimpse of paradise. The first, a man named Rabbi Azai, he died as a result of his heavenly vision. The second, Rabbi Zoma, went nuts. He went crazy as a result. The third, Rabbi Abuya, couldn't handle the knowledge. He became prideful and ended up a heretic. Only Rabbi Akiba survived the experience unscathed. It's a heavy thing to see heaven. Some of us bemoan the fact that the Bible doesn't tell us more about heaven. I think the problem is not God's reluctance to reveal. It's our inability to receive. Heaven is too heavy a reality for mortal men to handle, at least in this life. But what's significant about Paul's revelation of paradise in 2 Corinthians is that he pinpoints the time frame of his vision to his first missionary journey in Galatia. You recall Stephen saw heaven open as he was being stoned at the hands of Saul. Perhaps the heavens opened for Paul during his stoning in Lystra. Maybe this is where he got his glimpse of paradise. Verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, that is Derby, and made many disciples... The Jews didn't follow Paul to Derby. They were finally able to minister to the Gentiles here without Jewish interference. And many people came to Christ and were made disciples. Afterwards, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. In other words, they recur- returned the way they came. Strengthening the souls of the In other words, Paul went back to the people who had just stoned him to preach to them again to strengthen the souls of the disciples. 
it would have been closer to home, back to Antioch, to have gone over the Tarsus Mountains. But they backtracked the way they came so that they could organize the churches and so that they could strengthen the new believers, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. And after what Paul had been through, I would imagine you would have believed that message. Realize Paul taught that persecution is part of every disciple's training. Persecution is part of what God wants to do in your life. As Amy Carmichael put it, can he have followed far who has no wound, no scar? Real faith is a persevering faith. Later, Paul addresses these same people in Galatians 6. His readers there are questioning his sincerity. And he answers them by recalling his stoning in Lystra. He says this, Let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. In other words, anybody who doubts my love for Jesus, Paul says, just take a look at my scars. They show what I went through for my love for Jesus and my love for you. You Galatians. You know, one young man was certainly influenced by those scars. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul reminds Timothy that he had witnessed that stoning. For Lystra was Timothy's hometown. Timothy saw Paul's faithfulness even in the face of persecution. Verse 23. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Notice here, Paul appointed the elders. In Acts chapter 6, deacons were selected by the church, but the elders were and should be today selected by the existing elders. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. Notice this time Paul preaches in the coastal area of Perga. It's possible the weather conditions had changed. From there they sailed to Antioch, this time the Antioch of Syria, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. They're finally back home. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. This had been a major breakthrough. And so they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Paul's first missionary journey had lasted nearly three years. But they won't be resting for too long. They're about to be off again. They got a pastor's conference in Jerusalem. 